We're using vinyls tonight because this is Portland. To be fair. To, to be, be fair. fair. Vinyls do sound better. They do sound really good. As long as you've got a good. <laughs> well, as long as you have yeah, a good. As long as you know what you're doing. Yes, this is true. I will give you that. But yeah. no, I, I was actually very blown away when I actually found out. Like I was at a couple of clubs, and one of them explicitly did vinyls, mm-hmm. and it was it was wait, a wait, nice. Wait. Rich Rust tone. was at clubs. I used to. I spent nine months out of the year over in Seattle, man. That's fair. Welcome to the podcast where your hosts sample a different scotch each season while we dive into current social, political, and economic issues each episode. This is Scotch and Socialism. Folks, welcome to uh, the second season of Scotch and Socialism. I'm one of your many hosts, Griff, your resident, still a big government shill for the evening. You're going to plug that for a while, aren't you? Your resident future real estate speculator for the <laughs> evening. <laughs> a big government shill and a real estate speculator. This is great. Fair enough. I'm uh, Russ, and I will be your uh, resident slumlord for the evening. That's that's reassuring. Isn't it though? <laughs> I own a condo. I know you I do. Have it's a not a slum. It is not a slum. I have. I spent so much. Anyways, <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> we don't need to talk about that. Uh, and I'm Jake, your resident cranky suburban person. Get those apartments out of my housing district. I don't live know. Live in an apartment. You live. I, I know. Fine. I live in an apartment. It's great. Jake, why do you hate progress? <laughs> <laughs> this is America. And today we are joined by a special guest, Nick. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm Nick. I'm your resident dirt expert. What dirt, dirt expert. expert? I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, real the... estate for you, dirt and sticks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little oversimplified. Uh, so, I uh, am from Houston, Texas, and you never uh, tell by the accent. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he doesn't really. I, have I don't an really accent, have it. Does yeah, he? not not that bad. Um, Depends on who I'm talking to, I guess. If some if someone I found that if someone has an an accent, either a Texan accent or a southeastern accent, I notice that I actually kind of uh, pick up that accent a little bit. Uh, it might we slip into other people's bad habits. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I had to stop myself so many times working internationally because like you talk with Scottish people or Irish people, and you just start down that road. And it's I never got good. an accent when I was in Scotland or Ireland. Really? Never. Oh. My wife thinks she did. <laughs> I was going to say, we'll get back to that later in the season. (laughs) Nick, tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, So I currently work in the multifamily industry for an unnamed, undisclosed uh, management (laughs) company that that works in mostly Texas, Southeast, um, Phoenix, Denver. And uh, I just do finance for them, just kind of whatever anyone needs. Um, I don't don't really know how to describe my job exactly, but uh, and I... Spreadsheets? Yeah, I was going of, to say so. Nick should actually be the slumlord for this episode. Or? No, 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 no. <laughs> no he's, he's a venture capitalist. Ah, Ooh, yes. I would love to be a venture capitalist one day. That one just day. sounds so. Well, it sounds dashing. prestigious, right? I'm, I want to put that on a yeah. business card just for angel investor. Nice to go. meet you. How much can I get? Yeah, that's <laughs> actually that, that's not a bad idea. You're welcome. Anyway, so as so. we said, we're talking today about affordable housing, housing market space, real estate. All that good stuff. Just those things we live in from time to time and how crazy it is. Especially now, right? I mean, the housing market has exploded in the last year. Yeah. Do we know why? There's a there's a million reasons. I guess starting off, what is multifamily and kind of um, what do you guys do? Uh, well, my company does mostly um, larger apartment com- uh, communities. So uh, anything from like 50 units up. Uh, but multifamily is anything from two plus units. Um, the multifamily market in Houston, at least, has been really interesting over the last year. Um, people have been talking about urban flight, and it's definitely visible. We've had an increase of people leaving our communities to go buy uh, homes. Uh, the increase was five percent uh, year over year from 2019 and 2020. I haven't wow. looked this year yet but i would imagine it's it's still very much the same so is this just adding to the vacancy rate there as uh, far as like apartment complexes in central things? houston yes mm-hmm. um but our suburban 
apartment communities have actually fared really well in in the pandemic. Either people move, moving further away to get a bigger apartment or moving for, out of apartments into homes in the interest of getting right. more space. Mm-hmm. You know, people are spending more time at homes now and uh, they're not liking being cooped up in a in a 600 to 800 square foot apartment, one but uh, one bedroom apartment. So so this is kind of speculation here. Would you say or what would you say maybe you've seen some of the driving factors for that migration out of like multifamily, more urban apartment housing. I think it's a combination of things. Um, The spending more time at home, the work from home trend, which is still kind of a to be determined um, thing as, as the economy reopens and people go back into the office, whether people are continuing to work from home or if they're doing a, a hybrid kind of deal where they spend three days in the office and two at home. The other thing is uh, low interest rates combined with one of the highest uh, savings rates we've seen in the last, in the history of savings rates, really. I mean, uh, you get government stimulus compared um, combined with not going out and spending money on vacations, on high dollar items. So those those factors combined lead to having people having more savings, which can be used for a down payment on a house and low interest rates mean you get a, a lower monthly payment. So, so why not basically Upgrade stuff? Well, that's part of the thing is that a lot of the people who, a lot of the working class kind of lower mid to lower income, you know, they aren't really investing in the same way. Honestly, the four of us are because we're all fairly well off upper middle class, you know, people. Um, so they, they had disposable income and they could spend it. You know, whereas we had disposable income and we can also invest. Yep. So that's kind of interesting. That lays the tracks for some interesting things down the road, I think, mm-hmm. as well. Well, I think that kind of leads us into um, the greater topics of tonight's episode is more around affordable housing. Absolutely. So the certainly the three of us, I think the four of us, because I don't know Nick all that well, are in a relatively privileged position as far as our finances go. Um, So I was looking up some information. According to the Federal Department for Housing and Urban Development, HUD, you'll hear a lot of them, affordable housing is listed as 30% or less of your income. And so, like for me, I I did the quick numbers, and with my my gross, not my net, because I haven't not recalculated that since I started a new job, um, I'm actually paying about 15%, which is really freaking low in yeah, comparison really to, uh, into some folks. And I'm in a very well-paying market for, cause I'm a software engineer and I can, I can do that, but you're a software engineer in living Spokane. in Spokane. <laughs> right. Um, but I was also pulling up some of our numbers. So the, the average or median, I think income in Spokane is about 50 K uh, for a household. household. Yep. That's actually spot on. Yeah. The vast majority of the rent, we're talking 88%, is somewhere between 700 and 1500. So f- half of that is between 1000 and 1500, and the other half is between 700 and 1000. So you're looking at the very average of rent in Spokane. Are you doing math right now, Jake? No, I'm <laughs> scrolling through my notes because I wrote everything down and I have I don't like know, a... man. I can hear those gears just grinding away. Right? Oh, I'm sorry. He's the exact some numbers here. Yeah, the exact average of rent here in Spokane is about um, $1,123 with an average increase of 8% per year. Interesting. So that works out Did to... You say 1125 Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. That's... And if you look at interest rates, buying a 250k house, that's on par with mortgage. Yeah, that's good luck finding a 250 mm. well, that's house. the other thing. That's the other, that's the other thing. Yeah. Is the median price of a house in Spokane as April as of April 2020 is 290 thousand, which is trending up five and a half percent year over year. Mm-hmm. And if the median household income of a family in Spokane is 50, that is math time 17 percent, which is not a third. Or right. whatever the yeah, it's well below. ratio was. So a lot of people in Spokane are not in a quote unquote affordable housing scenario. So it's right. Well, it's if kinda, we're if we're talking nuts. our median income per household is about fifty K here, fifty one thousand. That means theoretically, and stats are weird sure. on this, theoretically half of the people are below that fifty one K marker. And so there's a good portion of just talking about Spokane that theoretically is not in an affordable dwelling right. um, situation. Right. 
But then you also have to look at, you know, who's living in the dwelling, right? Because it's not just one person. Generally, there's going to be two people for the family. They may have kids. They may have, you know, their elders living with them as well. That's becoming much more common uh, in, you know, our generation as obviously. Sure. We don't want to pay for homes for people. So, hey, why don't you come live with me, mom and dad? <laughs> well, I don't know if we talked about this in a previous episode. Multi-generational housing is actually takes up more of our timeline of societal beings mm-hmm. than does nuclear family dwellings like nuclear family really only became a thing forties, fifties. And now up until then communal housing, what multi-generational communal housing was the quote unquote norm. Sure. And there's a lot of things that have kind of been, you know, impacted by that shift generational wealth for one, you know, um, or, or I should say not necessarily generational wealth, but fluid wealth between a given household because if you have one household with multiple generations that can be working you know maybe you've got the son coming into a job the dad kind of in the twilight of his career and granddad might be in social security all of a sudden your median household income goes up significantly with that yeah stuff to think about for sure so nick since you're the guest on the podcast this week what's what's kind of your experience as far as you know where are you coming at for affordable housing, gentrification, all that sort of things like this. This is a insanely multifaceted topic, I guess, kind of in general. What's your what's your experience with it? I I have never really thought that there is enough affordable housing out there. You know, when governments look at affordable housing, they use that median income metric that, that you were quoting. And, you know, everyone that falls below that um, that av- or that median rent, um, I mean, they're not in affordable housing. And when you, as I think as Griff was talking about, when you have a family or grandparents or, you know, kids, wives, I mean, when you're having to support other people and on top of that have um, rent or mortgage payment, it becomes a real problem. And suddenly um, the cost of your housing becomes a greater portion of your, your monthly expenses. And that, that can be a problem. Finding good affordable housing is really difficult because the incentives are there for developers to not develop affordable housing. And that's a result of several things, including building codes. I mean, um, if you're looking at homes today compared to homes in the 1950s, you know, we have mostly uh, a lot of central AC now, which may not have been around in the, the 1950s. Slab foundations, a lot of houses in the 1950s were pier and beam. So... Houses in general have just gotten more expensive. Building codes have gotten more stringent, and that's just kind of led to to an increase in the the cost of housing. And there's not enough housing coming off the market to push rents and mortgages uh, and values low enough so that mm-hmm. people can can afford um, housing. So, um, I I don't know what what people do honestly to um I I guess you have to know someone that'll get you a good deal on on some rent or you know but um it's it's always blown my mind the um what people have to do to to just pay rent mm-hmm. on a on a monthly basis so it's nuts I mean in Spokane we're doing okay but our our affordable housing is rapidly vanishing and we might talk mm-hmm. a little bit about this later about our section eight. And a number right. of other things, um, but in San Jose, it was insane. Like I was a, I was an engineer being paid well, being underpaid for a software engineer in the Bay. But that, and I knew teachers, other other folks who weren't in an engineering discipline, and they were living for people or for couples, even occasionally to a household. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Um, just to barely, yeah, yeah. I think that's Communal what you, that's you have to do. That's multi-family at that point. That's, that's multi-family. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, insane. You have to split the cost uh, between several people to, mm-hmm. to even make it affordable. Right. I mean, if, if you have a family, I mean, I can't imagine having to share a house with another family or something. Yeah. Oh, but, yeah. you know, you, you have to if, um, if you can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Well, I was talking with some of my friends also in engineering fields down there, and like some of them had their own houses, and I asked them, like, how... How did you guys do this? In San Jose, to be within the city limits, effectively, I was looking for just whatever I could. I was thinking basically condo because land, if you had if you had grass, if you had a lawn, a yard or anything at all, <laughs> it's going to jump the price a whole lot. Whereas mm-hmm. around here, oddly enough, condos are more expensive on the average. People um, don't want the work. They don't want exactly. to deal with the, the maintenance. Exactly. Um, but there, I was looking for just a cheap or not nothing's cheap but a rundown condo nothing nice 
Like I'm not it's looking for, thing. yeah, and just two beds so I can rent out half of it to try and keep up with the mortgage. Well, that's, that's an interesting thing too. Is like down there, that's very common. It's a very normal thing. Like out here, it's weird to, if you decide mm-hmm. to rent out someone else. Yeah. 700k was the minimum that I was really seeing. Holy if crap. I got lucky, I could find something for six, and that wow. was still going to go for at least 50, if not 100, over asking. Mm. Wow, it's insane. Yeah. Are the vacancy rates that low that there that there's just such a thunderdome? It's pretty low. Well, and there's a lot of so Google is building a whole lot of offices out there. They've been building apartments and stuff around there too, but that's going to shoot up the rental prices because engineers can afford it and people are going to take advantage of that sort of a thing. Capitalism. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know how how is it down in Houston? Uh Houston I would say as a whole is not nearly as bad as as some other places Mm -hmm. uh the bay area is really unique because you're also geographically constrained and you have extra stringent building codes because of earthquakes and and stuff like that uh houston's a very hands-off kind of city uh there's not even any um zoning in houston really uh, which is which is interesting yeah there's no zoning in houston so you just build anything anywhere Pretty much, yeah. Uh, you you have to <laughs> wow. you, west you, in Texas. You still have to go through the city and get your your building approved. Sure, um, sure. But it's not in the conventional sense where you can only build commercial buildings on a certain block or in yeah. residential. Mm-hmm. You know, you can buy a piece of land and you're pretty free um, within the building codes to build whatever you want. Wow. So in that, and it's caused some problems with flooding i'm sure um, yeah. everyone's heard about all the flooding in in houston and that's kind of the result of uh of the the zoning because there's a lot of um impermeable soil so it all just runs off into the highways and you know and in, the place to go floods yeah. people's houses and stuff so that's kind of the result of that but also um it's in this housing and uh environment it's still really difficult to find houses for sale that aren't going for you know 20 to 50k over asking price mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as a, to contrast over in Austin, you know, two and a half hours down the road, it's a very different story. It's near impossible to find anything on the market. And when you do, it's, um, it's a much worse, um, much steeper premium that you're paying. You're paying, you know, I've heard some stories of a hundred to 150 K over, over asking price, which is, I, I think in some of the more extreme cases, I think that's what you're seeing in, in the country. Um, what's what's the population difference between Houston and Austin? I I think the Houston metro is somewhere around six six and a half million. Okay, and Austin's ugh, I don't even know anymore. It's grown so fast over the last ten years. Yeah. It's still not that big though. It's maybe two million in the metro okay. area. So it's, it's if, about Seattle. If size. that, okay. Um, it's not a huge city. Um, Austin's interesting too because it's also kind of geographically mm-hmm. constrained out to the west. Um, so you see a lot more cheaper housing out east of town, right? Oh. Um, and the houses to the west of town, where you have the lake and the hills, a little more uh, expensive landscape. Are, those and... are the houses that are going for one hundred and fifty thousand over over asking price. Wow. I wonder and where there are areas in this country where houses going for over asking is not the norm. Like, because Seattle houses go say, over. There's asking. a lot of Here places that are like low growth that are not seeing the boom right now. Right. right. And I wonder, I wonder if there are, okay, let me restate it this way. Obviously, there are probably places where that happens, yeah. but I wonder if there are like not necessarily major population centers, but, but decent large like, cities. Not, not random towns. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like Dothan, Alabama, where my grandparents live, 60,000 people. Not a tech hub, I've heard. Yeah. You know, they probably don't have this type of right. problem where Actually, even in Spokane uh, they're starting to you know mm-hmm. there's a house down the street from me that went for 15 over asking only and it's, 15 is surprising it's only. not a, I mean it wasn't and it, well they, it went for 15 over and they're remodeling the whole thing mm-hmm. well it's because the market's bare right now there's there's nothing well, that's the other thing is available we I, were I looked at just now go ahead Jake. 95% occupancy if not higher I think probably higher there's uh, I think last I looked was like May. 98. Yeah, like it was, it was yeah. I was, because I've been, you know, kind of looking for a house. I moved back to Spokane about six months ago. I've been living in an apartment and I've just decided I'm probably not going to move out of my apartment for at least another year. Yeah. It's crazy. And I like, I am in a very fortunate position where I can afford this apartment. It's a decent apartment, although I'm a little afraid what they're going to try and raise my rent to next, oh, absolutely. next time. Because um, I And I've also been hearing some horror stories from around here where their rent got jacked up by 40 50%, mm-hmm. which is just That's crazy. 
That sounds borderline, not it's, illegal, it's, but there's something, I feel like there's something else going on right, there than just it, keeping up with inflation and property valuation. Maybe, but 50% well, A lot of it is, is to recoup the losses for the last year. Mm-hmm. The, People who couldn't pay. That's Owners true. are very, they're, they're wanting their money back that they yeah. lost last year. Yeah. We're getting a lot of, uh, at my company, we're getting a lot of pressure to push rents really is that uh, a lot going right to, now. Is that going to backfire though? Because if you have people who are already like almost maxed out, if you go, okay, well, we need to, we have to bump X amount to make up for last year. Is that going to push people out and just, hopefully it'll, it'll let other people come in. Yeah. Well, that's the question. That's the thing is there's a wait Mm -hmm. list. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have people coming to this area. I know people who are staying in hotels right now Mm -hmm. waiting for apartments to be available. Well, we have a 1.1% vacancy rate. Yeah. It's, it's insanity. April, I think is what the and so yeah, if if it forces people out because you know they they raise their rent by fifty percent and it forces out the current tenant, guess what? They're going to have applicants the next day. Like, there's not mm-hmm. going to be a problem with that. If the market can handle it, that's that's what you know. It sucks for the, the people who can't afford it, but again, capitalism. <laughs> right. I <laughs> you mean, can this demand is, whatever you want for what little you supply. Yeah, and this is this is very much a, a the likely conclusion. To everything that's been going on over oh, yeah. the last few decades, if not century. And that's that's the really tricky things. There's a lot of folks, especially around here. So the valley in Spokane, which is where we're currently located, is pretty conservative area, politically speaking. Yeah. It's you know, you you've got a lot of people who have been living in the suburbs for a decent amount of time, very few long term generational stuff. Sure. Although we do have some of it. Sure. Um but uh, gosh, I, I even remembered, um, so my mother lives in a fairly quiet part of town, very, not super uppity, but, you know, kind of getting there. She's got a massive house and all these sorts of things. Um, again, very, very privileged area. And I just remember there was some neighbor or somebody in the neighborhood down, down the road, they had a huge section of their yard pulled out and, <laughs> Even my mom, who's pretty centrist, I would argue, was just like, "Oh God, I can't believe they're put, they're going to put apartments in there. It's just going to be awful and like this sort of thing." <laughs> I don't but know if that falls in a and pol- falls left or right, politically it speaking, tends to fall more to the right. Really, the whole like well against multifamily sort of stuff because oh, okay. the notion tends to be, and this is not always, but it, the notion tends to be like it's just going to cause more vagrancy. The stereotype of duplexes and multifamily around yeah. here is very much like they're the lower class sort of thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it's financially like a speaking, fulfilling stereotype right. because you got to have a really healthy amount of money to put down on a house if you're going to get close to approved for a decent oh, yeah. loan. And even with there, I haven't heard of loans. I haven't heard commercials for loans during the height of the pandemic offering 0% down loans. Really? Yeah. There were a couple institutions around here that were offering that. I don't know what the APRs were, but it's still, it's like the idea that you don't put anything down on a house. Well, that's very reminiscent of 2008, right? Yeah, it is in a way. It's like, this is not... Like, I understand helping, uh, but I hope we're at least checking on these people, right? Yeah. Well, that's not really going to do anything for your mortgage either. You know, even with a decent APR and nothing down, you're, yeah, you're gonna, you might end up very quickly in a bad situation. So, yeah, I can see that. Scary times. I see it in, the, in almost in terms of like the automotive industry because I've had people who have bought cars with nothing down and their monthly was just insane. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's somewhat reminiscent of 2008. It isn't, it isn't, in the sense that I don't think that you're getting as much speculation as we were in 08. Although, I mean, you might. Right. There's definitely a drive up in real estate prices like we saw in the run-up to 2008. But I think the reasoning for those... Was much different. Hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, 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 it's hard to tell. It's not like there's a big survey that they give you. It's like... Are you Why? buying this yeah. a speculative flip property? <laughs> yes. Like, uh, you're going right. to screw everything up. You know, no, I, I do find that there's a lot more people who are, are buying for themselves now as opposed to looking to flip or otherwise. Um, it's not, you know, a lot of people are moving, California especially, coming up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, 
Spokane was like the top 10 uh, places to move into mm-hmm. or something like that. Spokane and Coeur d'Alene are some of the top real estate markets yeah. in the country. It's insane. I mean, it's, it is. It's, and well, people are, well, people sell their houses and my, I'll just say coworker, um, <laughs> sold his house in Seattle, paid for his parents' house and then bought a house over here in cash oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. just boom, boom, all of that. And yeah. Well, that was one of my friends as well. Their their parents actually moved up here from San Francisco. Oh boy! And they they sold their house for like one point six, like you know, and it's just a nice you know two bedroom. And what, in San like, Francisco, one six is a reasonable price oh, for yeah. just a normal house. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, they come up here and the, they were talking to us like, oh yeah, we want to go like look at houses and see what we can find, and oh yeah, yeah, no, we can we'll go look at like the three hundred fifty. Mind you, this is like two years ago before everything exploded. Sure. But we're, yeah, we'll go look at like the three fifty to four hundred range. Like, oh no, we we don't want like a one bedroom. And we all just kind of <laughs> you, like, no, don't that, worry, you're not going to get a one. No, that, that's the top end there, buddy. Don't yeah. worry about it. You're fine. <laughs> well, and <laughs> prices have just keep skyrocketing. Um, Range Media actually had a really couple of good episodes on housing justice and things like that. Is like our there's so many people, people who have been in housing in Spokane for so incredibly long. We're talking multiple generations again who right. are getting pushed out, um, and that's like. That's such a weird thing, especially like coming coming from my own perspective. I've never really had to worry about that. And for a long time, this whole idea of like gentrification, as an example, was always like a really good thing, right? Like, oh, they're finally cleaning up these really nasty parts of downtown or like these shabby Reed homes or, or these. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, if your rent discriminates, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. That- yep. Well, uh, that's very true. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> not redlining if the bottom line is yeah. Mm-hmm. But mm. even these historical areas, like we haven't redlined quote unquote in decades, right? But the effect of that redlining is still here. Oh, right. absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's uh, gentrification is a tricky topic because it's 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 a two sided sword, and both sides are extremely sharp. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. in that. Yeah, there are places where there's it's really just destitute and there's, you know, vagrancy and vandalism and, and crime rates are high, you know, but I feel like if you I feel like if you convert and just I guess you could say just if you gentrify one area, you're displacing those people. It's like, oh, yeah, it's not well, like you're they're just going to go away. Yeah, it's it's, it's not. You know, there's an inf- there's a finite. You're fixing the geological problem, exactly, but you're not fixing the problem, exactly. You know? And that's the thing is that you know, I've seen some areas where yes, Harlem is a good example. Sure. I, I, I drove, I went through Harlem a couple of years back, and you know, Harlem kind of has the image of classically, you know, historically African American, Hispanic area. I would say it was maybe sixty forty minority to majority as far as you know skin color goes in Harlem and one of my buddies was at West Point at the time he'd come down to the city for a lot of stuff and he's like yeah there's a lot of people like Harlem is a trendy place to be now because it's it's relatively affordable compared to Manhattan sure but at the same time there's a lot of, there's a lot of culture and there's a lot of food and just art and stuff mm-hmm. so you got people coming in and usually they are white and have more money oh sure and so that they're able and willing to pay more so obviously rent and property it's going to trend will go upwards, up. right? Exactly. And it'll gentrify itself yeah. rather than having some sort of outside force like, oh, this is a bad neighborhood. Let's clean everything up and put True. up shops and, and housing like that. So you do get it on both sides. Because in one case, yeah, gentrification can be good if it takes a destitute neighborhood and turns into something help, helpful. Well, as long as the existing inhabitable. inhabitants can still if, live there. Exactly. If mm-hmm. they can stay there. Yes. And a lot of times the answer is no, they, no, can't, they can't. Because, because they get it's, priced it's now out. priced out. It's now more expensive. It's not it's not within their price range. And that's right. very unfortunate. Right. You know. And then those people can't find places to live where they're at. Yep. And the other thing that people don't often take into account is the cost of moving. Oh, yes. absolutely. You know, folks folks will often, again, from my cohort around here, will often say, well, why don't they just move to someplace cheaper? They can't afford it. It takes a lot of money. Yeah. And first of all, where? But technology, yeah, yeah, they can't afford it. And the other thing is the cost of commuting, too. Mm -hmm. Um, That's huge. The having gentrification and adding, I mean, it having gentrification is a sign of the market working properly. But the person that's living in a denser 
uh, closer to downtown um, location, they're the premium that they're paying for that just keeps going up and up and up oh, yeah. as more people come in. And they can stay there, but that's not going to do anything. You know, there's the market forces, the animal spirits are, are <laughs> the invisible <laughs> hand are, are uh, making the, the property values go up and um, you can move further out, but the, the lower cost of land further outside the city is going to be offset by the cost of having to drive your car mm-hmm. or take public or have transit. Because so, the the assumption is that you're working where most of the employment is, which is closer to the city center. Yep. So here's the question, though. Since we've seen so many well-paying industries move to a work-from-home, either permanently or majority model, and we've started to see rents in San Francisco, Seattle, Manhattan start to drop off, well, we're seeing decentralization. Exactly. Is what's happening. What, I mean, will that, could that work for people who might have just barely been priced out of these places? Like maybe, you know, their rent was like 1500 and they could do that, but it went, started creeping to 17, 18 and they can't. And now all of a sudden, okay, well, you know, the young tech millennial family, moves to Virginia because they can afford a 17 bedroom house oh, for a yeah. hundred thousand dollars. And they're maintaining the same job. Exactly. And Google pays them 150 grand wherever they yep. live. Well, so I think that's what's actually driving a lot people of the come people back. coming into Spokane from California because they now have a work at home option. You know, no offense, yeah. Jake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm the worst. We have one in the room. I know. Well, I mean, he took a new job. He's right. not working from the, the evil California corporation right. anymore. Yeah. I'm working but, for the evil Se- Seattle California yeah, it's fine. corporation. But, but that's the thing, right? Like now that we have the ability to work from home and, and a lot of places are going to keep that as a model. Right. Um, you can move into these lower, you know, uh, lower areas. I mean, I don't want to say Spokane's lower. I mean, it's compared but to you like can Seattle. move to places that oh, yeah. are not as ex- well. And here's a really good example. There's an author I follow who was, uh, writes for Haggerty. He was in Seattle for a number of years and they moved to Eastern Tennessee because he still gets paid the same yeah. regardless of where he works. I'm sure the cost of living is decreased by like 20% cheaper in yeah. Eastern Tennessee and it's not as crowded nope. and it doesn't rain all the time. The only know? downside is infrastructure. You have to At make first. sure that there's infrastructure. Now, if the people go there, the infrastructure will follow. Yeah. You know, that, if you that is the thing. that they will come. Absolutely. Well, I mean, look at Topeka, Kansas. I love Topeka, Kansas. It's one of my personal Never favorite been, examples. I think I've been in Topeka once. No one's been in Topeka. It's fantastic. There's a, um, hundreds of thousands. Of, anyway. It's, but it's a small town. <laughs> right, it's comparatively right. to, uh, is it Wichita? It's like right next door. Yeah. Um, right. Huge area, right? Um, but no, Topeka, one of the, the primary locations of Google Fiber, it drove industry. I like, believe it. They dropped it in and people moved there by the, the hundreds well, of Well, there thousands. are places here in Washington that have like Amazon data centers. So they well, have yeah. well, huge a, infrastructure. Quincy is a great Quincy, example. And there's no one there. No, it's farmland. <laughs> it's beautiful. So if you wanted to own a farm well, or, and if, work or if you from wanted home, to be a tech, I mean, that's the thing. Like they were employing uh, local right. knock techs uh, open in Quincy and they couldn't find enough people because it's a farming community. Right. But then, of course, they started pulling in remote administrators. And that mm-hmm. was the thing. It's like you can work from anywhere. And there are so a lot really of people. Help. There are a lot of people that work for Microsoft who live in Wenatchee. Oh, absolutely. And I wouldn't blame them because it's a beautiful place mm-hmm. compared to Redmond's, uh, Redmond's. Not bad, um, but it's a whole lot cheaper. Oh yeah, the, the price point is is absolutely appealing. Yeah. Reverse gentrification, possibly. I mean, with, with cities becoming less. I think the glitch you're going to run into though is a lot of these professions require technical ability. Like it's not your blue collar workers. These are your white no, collar workers. No, I understand that. But what I'm saying is if the white collar tech workers who can work from home leave these downtown metro areas oh. and move out to more affordable places, Which all of a sudden will force rent and will drive work. vacancy and rent. It'll That's drive true. vacancy up and rent down. Which means could these people who were in these areas historically come back? Mm-hmm. And we're actually seeing that in Houston. Uh, there, there's a little bit of a supply glut in central Houston, but I, I mentioned earlier our suburban properties are doing really well, and I think that's just because people are, are you know, people that work in downtown Houston or in the Galleria area are now moving out to the suburbs, and if they have to commute in, then maybe like once or twice a week, that's not a big deal. But it's no, they're no longer having to do an hour and a half drive from KD to downtown every Daily, day, which yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So now they're able to move further out, and we're actually seeing rents in Central Houston um, kind of struggle either either go down or stay flat versus our suburban properties, which are up three to five percent. I found a very interesting fact. 
I just looked it up. The median asking rent for a Manhattan apartment is $700 less than what it was last year. And really? then Brooklyn, that rent has fallen 10% I believe since it. 2020. Wow. Which for us, we've actually gone up. Yeah, we see yeah, and we ha- I get Zillow market updates every day, and oh, it's like double digits every 12%. time. percent. <laughs> it's yeah. like pro- pro- projected rent or projected house increase twelve percent over the next year. Yep. It's like, is this the time to buy apartments in Manhattan? <laughs> mm-hmm. Short answer, no, because the rent's falling. Once it rocks, once, once, once it, it hits, hits the bottom, bottom, then you buy. <laughs> it'll stabilize yeah, at some point. Just, where's that bottom? Well, Give it a couple of years. We'll figure it out. Yeah, it, it really does depend on the, I think, the the corporations that are allowing the whole work from home, the allowing to, the telecommute. Um, because if we don't have that, obviously, this goes away, right? And people are going to be forced back into the cities, back into you know, close proximity to their jobs where they can use public transit, where they can walk to work, bike to work, whatever. Um, so I, it really does, I think, depend on what businesses end up doing with the post-COVID work-at-home scenario. Uh, it's it's been interesting just from chatting with you know just the people we have here, very different sides of the fence. I mean, you know, Griff's company is very much yeah we're gonna we're gonna come in when we feel like it. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe we'll pull some people in immediately, but realistically, it's gonna be a year or two before we really do anything. Right. Um, my company, July first, we are back on site, no questions, no exceptions. You are back, and so it, it's I think it's gonna really depend on mm-hmm. the the companies themselves, right? Especially the larger ones. I mean, those are obviously the ones that are going to dictate what happens yeah i'll be curious anyways i think it's time for a scotch break scotch break. this is your regularly scheduled scotch break scotch uh, on a hot day yay or nay oh, mm, scotch on a hot day inside on the rocks there's ac well yes <laughs> it's freezing in this room, so it's <laughs> quite quite nice right Russ's now. Meat <laughs> so so it's our scotch break this season. We're drinking a new scotch. This is the Glenfiddich twelve uh, year single malt. It's quite nice. It is quite nice and affordable. It is quite affordable depending on the state in which you live. <laughs> That's true. Fair. I mean, Always relative yes, relative to other scotches, it does fall more on the affordable. Still a quality scotch. What's it um, like compared to Ainsley Bray? I think it's a little bit more expensive than Ainsley Bray, but I prefer this over Ainsley Bray. Yeah. Ainsley Bray is not a bad scotch, but it's like, um, you know, if you buy a, a Lexus over a Mazda, Mazda's not a bad car, but a Lexus has a little bit more, okay, you know, a when car I, reference in and there. I have a, a good car I, reference I, in always. there. And by a little bit more expensive, we're talking like five to ten dollars. Mm-hmm. It is really not that much more expensive. Well, on a base, on a price point basis. Now, if you buy Ainsley Bray, in Idaho and Glenfiddich in Washington, oh, well, yeah. you're going to pay $40 more for the Glenfiddich <laughs> yeah. because of the taxes. But overall, yeah, it's really not that much more expensive. And it's, I think it's pretty good. What do you think, Jake? I like it. Um, it's definitely not very peaty if it's not mm. a peated scotch. And no. so um, if you're looking for peated, the Glenfiddich 12 is not what you're going to be going for. It, However, right. it, it's got some decent flavor to it and i like both peated and non-peated it just depends on the mood that i'm in um it's less sweet than Ainsley yeah. Bray for sure which i kind of enjoy mm-hmm. i almost get a little like there's like a caramel or maybe vanilla happening mm-hmm. in there not again not as sweet as the Ainsley Bray but it's still there's a little hint of that this almost drinks more like almost like a bourbon yeah i'd which say so i think it's pretty i think it's pretty nice what do you think nick i I actually got a sneak peek of this last night, and Griff and I were talking about this, and I'm not typically a scotch whiskey bourbon connoisseur, um, but I really like this one. Um, it seems more smooth. I, th- I think what we've got it down to is I tend to like single malts. Sure. Um, <laughs> Welcome to the snobbery. Yeah, <laughs> taste. Well, uh, I, I feel like this Glenfiddich is also very accessible. Yes. Um, you know, especially when it comes to more peated scotches or whatever, it's harder to really get into. Yeah. And not in sort of a, well, your palate's just not refined. It's just. It's not it's, a refinement. It's just almost an acquired uh, yeah. taste. And 
I don't know. Griff and I are both masochistic enough. Maybe it is sort of <laughs> sort of I, a masochism thing. I do like a heavily peated scotch. And I love a very pe- uh, peaty scotch and or a very extremely bitter IPA. So I probably just kind of hate myself or something. I don't know. It's the deep-seated. <laughs> yeah, it's the angst. <laughs> the angst. The angst manifests itself in my scotch preferences. You know, and the interesting part is that's probably why I don't drink, interestingly enough. So my, my parents... <laughs> We're very much the, I think we called them blends uh, the other night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my dad, personal favorite is Black Velvet. The ashtray, in my opinion, of oh whatever the hell that that's is. That's buying a curl off a rental lot. It's, it's oh, bad. Man. It's so bad. But that, that was my exposure to hard alcohol was water and Black Velvet. Oh, man. Oh, Lovely God. mix. God. That would put anybody. Uh, and off so I, I basically said, if this is drinking, I don't need to See, drink. And this is what's interesting is my I didn't really start. I mean, I'm very far from an alcoholic. I didn't start consuming any type of harder alcohol until grad school. Insert your joke here. Uh, and but when I did, I had a buddy who kind of said, "Okay, well, let's you know try this, try this," and yeah. he kind of warmed me up to it. Mm-hmm. And it was like Four Roses, Elijah Craig, Weller. So pretty high quality stuff right off the bat and it's like oh okay this isn't like you know drinking staples well so that's just it and then nice. i think that mm-hmm. is what was really a turnoff for me initially and i just never revisited because right. i didn't have well i didn't trust anyone at that point maybe either. that's sure. maybe that was the plan it's like huh we don't want rest to ever drink give them the garbage well i mean that's all, <laughs> that's all they ever drank like they loved yeah. it like dad yeah, still loves black velvet like if you want to impress my father bring him black velvet like yep all I We're going to get is the hundreds first... of bottles of black velvet now. I just got a gallon for Christmas. Us. Like He yeah. loves it. It's yeah. the coolest thing. We're going to say, Jake? I uh, remember the first time I tried scotch, it was the Glen Levitt 12, which is a pretty solid pretty scotch. Um, but I was not prepared for it because, you know, you do have to, with hard liquors, but scotch very specifically, you have to kind of carry your tongue a little differently. You mm-hmm. want to be very careful with how you sip it. Um, and I definitely aspirated oh, all man. over. It was just, mm. I like couldn't stop coughing for a solid five minutes. <laughs> like, and so I've learned oh, and it's rough. like, and I can understand folks who don't like scotch. It's usually because, you know, you're trying to take too much of it in at once or anything like that. Scotch is definitely sipping yes. uh, hard liquor. It's not something you shoot. And the other thing I think is that scotch gets very strongly and very often associated with very smoky, peated scotches when that really only makes up about 20%, Mm -hmm. maybe, of what's on the market. Yeah. But to differentiate psychologically from whiskey, bourbon, rye, think, oh, scotch, it's like a tire fire. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the market, how are we going? (laughs) Speaking of the market. Hard segue, but it works. Um, (laughs) So, like, talking, like, affordable housing is in a bit of a crisis here. Like, Spokane, our occupancy rate is so incredibly high. We have a lot of folks being pushed out, especially, like, long, long long-term renters being pushed out. Returning into Seattle. Um, Yeah, where our property taxes have been going up because other valuations have gone up in that same area as well. Like, how, especially, like, so... You know, I've, I've mentioned on the podcast a couple of times, like I volunteer at um, kind of a soup kitchen downtown. And so a lot of our clients are houseless. Yeah. We have in the area some housing for stuff. It's not the greatest right now, but we're going to start seeing more and more uh, folks being displaced and for folks being kind of forced into homelessness, especially if they can't afford to move somewhere else. Um, right. So how do we keep doing this? Because like one of the thoughts that I kind of had was, with all of these cities, in Spokane, this is different, but with all these bigger cities, San Jose, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Manhattan, or whatever, especially the big tech hubs, folks kind of exiting the cities because they can now work remotely. Like, there are these big office buildings. Can we just convert them? To me, that would make kind of a lot of sense. Well, a lot of people would uh, agree with you, but... I asked that same question. It's it's a little bit harder than most people think because when you initially design an office building, you have a certain use in mind and you kind of optimize it around that use. Um, the tough thing with office buildings is you usually have a floor plan with not very many windows. So only the, the higher paid executive people will have the outside offices and then the people on the inside won't 
they don't need windows. They're lower paid. They're, you know, they're <laughs> the peons don't need to see the sun. Yeah, but um, versus an apartment where you want to have some light coming in, you don't mm-hmm. want to live in a dark, depressing place. Um, the other thing is utilities. Uh, office buildings tend to have their um, bathrooms, water fountains, um, just all the piping, all the electricals go through the center of the building just for simplicity's sake. But when you have multiple units on one floor, um, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't already have the pipes and the infrastructure in place, it's very expensive to change that. Um, so you have a lot of, it's a very high cost to convert the utilities um, combined with the dark interiors of the buildings. And, it's it ends up costing more money than it's worth and you see i mean if the office building isn't needed anymore you'll just see it rot in downtown and you know, someone's probably losing a lot of money on that but well not only that i mean un- until, abandoned buildings don't look good yeah no, they don't look anyway. good but there's not much i mean as far as like the economy goes the way that markets work i mean it's just going to sit there until it depreciates in value enough to where it's worth it to make that you know someone can buy it and make that conversion or you tear it down and build it into something new which is expensive and it doesn't solve the affordability um the housing affordability problem well, and of course we see a lot of those getting converted to parking lots yeah especially in downtown areas. Yeah. you know because it's just like oh we have we have space now check this out we can park our cars here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's not doing anything for use as far as yeah. you know affordable housing as well yeah so the only real estate asset class that's really feasible for conversions is hotels because you already have the the exterior it's already compartmentalized yeah you already have the utilities you can you can combine hotel rooms to make two-bedroom apartments or a living room that's actually a very interesting idea is there a lot of do you know if there's a lot of uh, investment into like failing hotels to be converted to condos, apartments, and such, or is that even a thing? It it is a thing. I, everything's a thing. Well, <laughs> yeah. True. That's sure. real I mean, we we actually have our own example of that uh, downtown. A uh, kind of an eyesore for a long time, but a very iconic one was the Tiki Lodge Motel. Uh, I was aware of that one. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, you were passing it. You would pass it on I ninety anytime oh. you'd pass Division, and uh, it was in shambles and uh now it's the baymont inn which they completely redid but there is Where is there was it? some time um between division and monroe i think hmm. i have no idea uh, yeah um, but there See, was that's that's the thing we i i've lived here for yeah. a quarter of a century i don't even know where it is <laughs> right but there was a lot of talk um because i think catholic charities which has a large housing operation here uh was talking originally about trying to use that right. and build it into some housing stuff mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I've seen I've seen a little bit of talk about it every now and then. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and well, ho- hotels do make more sense. Yeah, they're hotels are definitely neighbor. they're the better option, but it's still the cost of doing it's just um, prohibitive, honestly. Sure. Um, and you can really only fix that with subsidies or, I mean, changing the building code. Quite frankly, um, honestly, uh, I think a good revisit of building codes. Um, and, and I think COVID has presented a good opportunity for to kind of take a look at building codes and housing affordability because you have a lot of people moving out of centralized areas now. Well, what are you going to do with that space now? Yeah. Um, why not use it productively? So I think if you made a couple of uh, adjustments with um, building codes, um, we're still and, some flexibility. And, and, you know, I'm typically a very free market kind of guy, but uh, if you want affordable housing to happen, the current incentives are not in place for them to happen. Right. So and if you did, even if you did convert some of these buildings, you would see more of the same where, where they would convert them into what we call class A space, um, which is the, the best kind of space you can get. And, and you know, that's not affordable to people. Wouldn't that mm-hmm. eventually, wouldn't that market or that segment of the market, the class A eventually becomes saturated to the point where the demand just goes away. It would, and it would force rents down, but the problem is that would also disincentivize development. Mm -hmm. So it would kind of reach an equilibrium where above the affordable housing price, you know, class A is, you know, the rents are going to be in a certain window 
and people aren't going to develop class A space unless they know that they can get those rents. Right. And and the thing with real estate that's really tough is that developing a high-rise apartment complex will take many years. Yeah, so that's true. So the problem that we've seen in Houston and Central Houston is a lot of people have started building new apartment complexes and they've added a huge amount of supply in Central Houston and then COVID happened and now there's less demand for it. And you're really seeing the the rents tank, and a lot of people are losing a lot of money mm-hmm. um, on that. Yeah, and I'm curious to see what um, you know if we're going to go the way of some of these like ghost cities almost in China that have been yeah. reported on over the years. It's just like huge high rise apartments and no occupant or no nothing there. is occupying. And this also begs the question: is like you know being a fairly free market person yourself, and I waffle depending on the day between either almost ultra libertarianism versus ultra socialism mostly because i'm just crazy um, a complex person yeah no mostly because <laughs> i'm just really frustrated with people why would folks want to increase affordable housing folks folks like us you know who are in more privileged positions like can afford the housing as it currently stands it's not benefiting us necessarily right well <clears throat> could it though I mean, here's the thing, because we, because Russ, you and I own houses. Yep. And we're sitting on illiquid, a, a rather large amount of illiquid capital, True. effectively. If we were to realize those gains, it doesn't really do us much good if we want to stay here in town. No, it really Because doesn't. we're going from, we, we sell a house that might be 370. We're going to buy houses 370. Or more. If or we want. more. So you're either going backwards yeah. or you're just breaking even in well, which and case and i think that's why a lot of people move to a lower right you know Eastern cost of living mm-hmm. you know because that's things people from seattle sell their eight hundred thousand dollar house move here buy the same house for half that price right you know and we would have to do the same thing we would look at the same thing we would sell our house for 400k and we'd go find some place we could buy the same thing for 300k or at least that'd be the idea so in that case does that spread the problem of unaffordable housing because if you have, it. if you, what's that? I think it continues it. If you have this cascade, which is kind of what happens, someone's going to get bumped at the bottom. Yeah. Well, it's just in it, right? every location. Cause that, that's know? generally the issue, right? The, the people who are being the most affected by that is the people who can't one move to can't a keep up. lower housing area because right. they're in the lowest housing area right. and they have no place to go. And if I am looking for a house because I've sold mine out of my higher end area, well now I can, you know, demolish the low-income housing area and build my own house if I wanted to, or, you know. So here's a question. In the bigger cities where we're, where we might end up seeing more just vacant high-rises or half-built, hope, not hopefully, un- unfortunately, half-built high-rises, could there be, now this does get a little bit big government, so I'm bringing it up. Could you relocate homeless people into these, I'm not saying put the homeless people in half-built high-rise, but finish it out in a way that's hospitable or habitable. And then, because I think but convert Utah, it into well, more of a housing. Right. I think well, they tried that in Utah. They just gave homeless people apartments because yes. it was cheaper mm-hmm. the data than maintaining does seem them to on show the street. That it's, it, that it's a net positive. And so Volunteers of America is also very big here in Spokane, although right. they don't advertise themselves very much. I think we, I've talked about them before on this podcast. And they just built a large development um, that's got a lot of yeah it's a lot of shelter space so somewhat temporary but they also do a lot of permanent residency right and again like there's some clients that they have that are permanent there um but that's the minority and so i think that's one of the things that you know it's it frustrates me a lot of the times that i have to try and convince people that affordable housing is good because people are human and they deserve (laughs) they deserve housing housing like but at the same time like fine if we have to go down these arguments there there are financial reasons where it makes sense to well i mean we delve into drugs episode right you know and you know from and nick i'd love to hear your your experience and opinions on this is like it does seem to be as we get more folks into affordable housing they can start contributing back to society more our society our our area our nation whatever becomes more prosperous Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i i definitely agree with that i think where you find resistance is people associate lower income people with crime Mm -hmm. there's definitely some stereotypes and you don't want to i mean you would think that you know it would be really easy for the government to build 
local government, state governments to build a high-rise uh, building for strictly for affordable housing in a downtown area, and and then you don't have the you know the financial incentives aren't there because it's the government. They don't need to build that class A space. Right. They can build it with you know relatively cheap materials. They don't have to have the nicest newest finishes. They just need housing. Well, they're not building it housing. to sell it. Yeah, exactly. For profit. They're building but it for just where you find the resistance. I think is when people are like, oh, it's going to bring crime into the area. It's going to NBs and. And I think to some extent that that's true. I don't think people give it enough time to really work itself out. Right. Agreed. I think, um, what, sorry, go ahead. No, you, I, I was done. I was just going to say, I think if you have a public angle to it where public dollars are coming in, you get people who, like I said, NIMBY's not in my backyard. Yep. You know, you get people who don't want, you know, the homeless tower going up down the street from me, or mm-hmm. they don't want to spend... They don't want to think the government is spending millions of dollars maintaining this because that's the other thing is that if you build this high rise, let's say hypothetically there's this high rise that they house homeless people in, you're going to have to maintain it if you want those people to have a chance because it's oh, yeah. it helps mm-hmm. to put a roof over their head, but it's not the end all be all. And the private sector, I don't think, is really going to be keen to jump on that because yeah. they need to make money to stay afloat. Well, it that's not a way to make money. Them, right? Exactly. And that's why you see the Catholic charities. You can see the Catholic church and the nonprofits doing these types of things. Oh, yeah. But the interesting thing is that if you have, if you have an address and a phone number, you're already way ahead of the game as far as getting a job that can mm-hmm. actually hopefully generate you sustainable right. income. And it's someone who does it. like looking at that the other way. If you don't have an address and a phone number, what's the first thing that you fill out on an application? Your okay, contact your, info. Yeah, your location. Like, if you can't well, how do you have... Do, you know, if you are homeless, how do you get in contact with an employer? There's you that. Know, it's like, if I give you an application, that's great, but how do you contact me? I don't have a cell phone, probably. Right. right. I don't have access to pay phones anymore, because those don't exist. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, shelters it's... are good, but still not great, because then you're dealing with, like, some random receptionist. Mm-hmm. If uh, you're lucky. If you're lucky. And a if lot of even answers the phone. Right. And a lot of the shelters don't really even have that option. Well, they don't, they and don't it's want like, you to use it, yeah. Right, exactly. And we could get into this on a whole other episode of the whole like, well, well they so just the need to go get a job. Well, are you going to hire these people? <laughs> like, nope. <laughs> you can't you can't just say that and then say like, oh, they're just too shabby or whatever. Like well, I feel like a lot of people really push the idea that someone else's problem. Yeah. You know, it's not my issue. They can deal with it. Which and of course, like, you know, the, also the other counter argument is just like, well, would you have them in your house or whatever? It's like, that's one person. We as a society can help this systemic issue a lot better. And actually there's, and again, affordable housing is a huge topic. We've kind of talked about it tonight through um, a little bit through just, you know, folks who already have housing who are being right. pushed out, but also like the, the bigger or I guess not the bigger topic, the topic that gets pushed more into the light, potentially because it's m- more of an urgent issue, I suppose, are, f- are houseless folks. Well, it's like running to catch an elevator, mm-hmm. you know, because if the elevator is the housing market and it going up with its valuation, if you're in that elevator, Great. you're fine. You're fine. You but know, if you're but trying if to catch you're, it. Exactly. If you're a homeless, if you're homeless or on the edge of homelessness, right. And you're trying to reach for it. Yeah, they're not handing out ladders. No, no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're and, not. That's, and it, people are often trying to hit the close button. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, because they don't want them anywhere near them. Right, and that's the... I think that's the great fine. analogy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I've, studies have shown, and granted, there's a lot of nuance to data. I'm not saying this is 100% true at all. But it seems to point to you know taking care, having the state or some government entity, a... Um, even a co-op or whatever, taking care of our homeless folks and providing that housing for them is far cheaper than not. Right. Because it lifts people up. Yeah. Instead of having these street cleaning crews go through and all that sort of stuff, like we've been having a big issue with that with some of our clients. Like suddenly, you know, we've got a lot of clients who kind of stay on their bridges for a lot of the times and suddenly they'll just not be there anymore. I remember seeing that. It's, Yeah. yeah, and... But that's actually more cost prohibitive. And it's, I mean, the same thing happens in a lot of sectors. Like this study has been done with healthcare and things like that too. Is like, we're, we have to stop looking at the short term. Mm-hmm. It's hard though. That's mm-hmm. what Good everyone with that. looks at. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... Well, you're talking about a massive psychological shift here. Oh, and that was one of the things that, that's, I mean, that's kind of the social side of it. One of the things that I remember reading from the article is on the financial side of it. 
in that for the longest time, houses were not seen, just real estate in general, was not seen as a investable security. It's not seen as something to make money off of. It was seen as just a commodity, like lumber or coffee or orange juice, you know. Um, but in the 80s-ish, late 70s, when they started packaging mortgages as investable securities, well, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, well, these houses are everywhere. Let's, why can't we capitalize on it? Right. And you're asking people to adjust thought patterns on both of those. And when there's money involved, it's not easy. No. Well, you know? humanity and, tends to drop off when money is involved. That's yeah. kind of a thing. Which is ironic because, I mean, we talk, and like I said, we talked about this on the drugs episode. It would have been a thousand times more financially sound to legalize, regulate, and tax yep. than it would be to just throw all this war on drugs stuff at it but then you know it looks like oh we're tolerating drugs like oh we're tolerating homelessness by giving the we're enabling we're just these people by giving them, them lazy and yeah. all that sort of sorry stuff. nick you can kind of get the idea of where this podcast goes <laughs> <laughs> so um i think this is kind of a i mean we don't we've talked about a couple of ways we think we can solve this this is a massive massive issue and i think oh, it's absolutely. going to continue to go on until i think it's probably Number two or three, mm -hmm. as and, far as socialness goes, right? And if you know, I'm I'm concerned that we're going to see some sort of bubble that pops. It's not going to be like what we had in 2008, but we're going to start seeing, like I said, our home houseless population is growing. Our a lot of folks are being pushed out, and so um, it's kind of <laughs> closing in on a, a down note. But um, I think there's hope. I think. We Where's the hope? Where does Jake this? see the hope? I'm I'm genuinely curious. I think that socially we're becoming more aware. Okay. Um, I think that people are actually caring now. A lot of it is lip service. Sure, that's the problem that I have. You know, as far left leaning as I tend to be, I'm not a Democrat because that's the biggest problem that I have with a lot of the Democratic Party, not necessarily okay. policies, is that it's a lot of lip service. Fair. Um, but I think. I think what we're edging towards might actually be something that actually helps lift people up and have actually starts, you know, benefiting not just people who are down and out on their luck, right. but the entirety of society. Right. If, um, if you could put a dollar amount as far as if, if you could attach a, a lucrative financial figure to fixing the problem, I guarantee you the world would unite behind it. Incentives. incentives. I mean, you're not mm -hmm. wrong. And I think, I think there's an opportunity here. Um, and I try to see, I'm, I'm starting to try to see more of these issues as, as chances for opportunity is you have these major metropolitan areas that are experiencing high rates of vacancy, high rates of immigration, immigration, people leaving immigration flight. Thank you. But you know, a lot of the homeless population there, the near homeless population, they're probably not leaving anytime soon. Oh, no. So yeah, somebody might have to foot the bill, but you can re-incentivize that or you can ex post facto incentivize that to convert some of these soon to be vacant or vacant or half finished residential buildings to being more hospitable to people who need, who have nothing, yeah. you know, like us, you know, we, we all, all four of us make fairly good money. We could afford to live in a lot of different cities so we can be very choosy about where we live and how much we pay for rent. People who have nothing or almost nothing don't have that option. Mm -hmm. And this is not a, well, beggars can't be choosers, but it's like a, Hey, you don't have a lot. Here's, here's a little bit to help you out, you know, and you can call it socialist all you want, but if ultimately it produces or it converts more people to be economic participants, that's it, it only going to be a net positive. Yeah, it helps everyone. Yes. So any uh, final Takeaways, closing Jake. thoughts? Nick, Jake, Nick, uh, hard like, names. Yeah. The, the one thing I forgot to mention earlier, I know I mentioned building codes and I'm not entirely familiar with building codes in general because they're, well, they're first of all, different city to city. As far as like a short-term solution to the problem, building codes, taking another look at those, I think is, is a good uh, start. And also zoning. I forgot to mention zoning. Um, a lot of places that have zoning, um, part of the problem is you just can't build high enough density housing right um in areas where you need it and i think if you worked with the building codes and the zoning in cities i think that's a good for those that you know, do not like the socialist 
uh, mindset, <laughs> I think that's a good place to start because then you bring the incentives back. Um, other than that, I mean, you you almost have to have some sort of government intervention. Um, you know, talking about incentives again, you know, economists love incentives. Um, but if the incentives aren't there, no one's going to come in and, and develop anything. So you you kind of have to create that create those incentives, whether it's through government intervention, change in building codes, change in zoning, change in something, you know, um, it's above my, uh, my knowledge, <laughs> but, uh, incentives. Yeah. Perfect. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for joining us yeah, on it's been great. Uh, Scotch and Socialism. I know we're recording this a little bit early for when we're planning on actually starting season number two. Um, so hopefully, I mean, hopefully stuff has changed in the towards the better yeah, the since, we are, since we're <laughs> talking, we're recording this in July. But who knows? We'll, uh, we might have a follow-up episode to this. But yeah, it's a lot of data thrown at y'all. Thank you so much for listening. Um, please drop by our website, scotchandsocialism.com. Leave us a comment, like, and subscribe. You know the drill by this time. Um, please remember to listen and drink responsibly. <laughs>